Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. LeBay, and I welcome you all to the show. It's going to be a fantastic uh, conversation, I think, that we're going to have today. But before we get started, since we are always getting new listeners, I like to just tell you a little bit about Alzheimer Speaks and what we're about. Bottom line, we are an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. We believe by joining forces and sharing knowledge and having these everyday conversations about life with dementia, that we're going to be able to remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and help those living with the disease uh, take back their lives. Together, we know that we can help everyone understand the true needs of this disease and remove the myths that are creating such barriers out there and isolating people and, of course, creating fear with that. We know that collaboratively we can all make a difference, and that's a proven fact um, just through our show alone here at Alzheimer's Speaks. Um, last November, we were um, privileged to be acknowledged as the number one influencer online through Share Care with Dr. Oz, and that would not have happened without all of you Um, sharing these episodes. So your little clicks, you're liking them, sharing them with your Facebook family, um, shooting it off to uh, your Google circles, uh, maybe passing it on to your LinkedIn groups, emailing them. You can even embed these shows into your own websites. Is a powerful message, and it's all about spreading the word, getting the knowledge, and hearing others' voices. Because if there's one thing I've learned in my 30-year journey with my own mother is none of us has all the answers. And it really takes, you know, a village to to get a perspective and to really be able to deal with all the all the all the variables of this disease um, in which they affect not just the person who has the diagnosis, but everybody around them. So again, thank you so much for, for helping out, and I hope that you'll do that with this show as well. We would really like to continue to raise awareness. And so if you're thinking that you might have uh, something that someone else might want to know about, let me know. And maybe you're somebody living with the disease. Maybe you're caring for a spouse or a parent or a friend. We all have a lot more knowledge and a lot more skills 
skill than what we give ourselves credit for sometimes. You might also be a business or organization or advocate um, in in um, the midst of some big changes. So uh, give me a jingle, shoot me an email, make a note in the chat box. I'd love to connect with you and talk about having you on the show because, again, this, this whole uh, show, Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, along with our blog and our website, is all about raising everyone's voice and sharing the knowledge. I also want to encourage you, if you're listening um, via your computer, to join the conversation via the chat box. And that's really easy to do, um, especially if you've signed in through Facebook. You can just go ahead and put in a comment. I'll be monitoring those as we go. Or you can always call in live, and that number is 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757, and we'd love to, love to hear from you. Um, one last thing I just always like to mention in the beginning of the show is if you are in need or interested in hooking up with an Alzheimer's Association anywhere in the world, please connect with Alzheimer's Disease International. You can Google just Alzheimer's Disease International, or you can go directly to their website at www. ALZ.co.uk. And um, there you'll get all kinds of information, but again, you'll be able to find the association closest to you. Um, many people ask me about trials, and I would encourage you to go to the Alzheimer's Studies. Dot com Again, alzheimerstudies.com. There's a great Tau trial out right now, and um, they're looking for people to participate in that. It's a wonderful way to um, help progress this disease and be able to find a cure. And then Lewy body, we're hearing so much more about Lewy body disease. And with that, um, in and of itself, um, you know, it's a little different, and so it's nice to be able to talk to people who truly understand the disease. So Lewy Body Dementia, um, their association is just lbda.org, lbda.org. And, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the Purple Angel Project, which is the new global symbol for dementia around the world. So um, with no further ado, let's go ahead and, and talk to our fantastic panel um, of women from Us Against Alzheimer's. I'm first going to um, introduce you to Virginia, known as Ginny Bigger, and she is the Associate Director there. Jenny manages the Activists Against Alzheimer's Network, as well as she is a, kind of a storyteller in terms of sharing story and video programs. She brings over 20 years of media and communication experience as a writer, reporter, and filmmaker to Us Against Alzheimer's campaign. Jenny um, most recently wrote and produced the film Sweater Queen, uh, May Gerber and a rise of um, Pandora industry, and she's—it's uh, all about a hundred-year-old 
little lady called May, um, and one of the most successful businesswomen of her generation. So an interesting film. Prior to that, she worked for the national radio um, as a reporter in Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., and she covered a wide range of issues from the Clinton impeachment to labor issues, welfare reform, the O.J. Simpson civil trial. So I I can't imagine um, what a fascinating um, history all of that would be. So um, I would just like to introduce you again to Ginny Bigger. Welcome to the show, Ginny, and I hope you're kicking off your day well. Thank you, Lori, and thank you so much for that introduction and having us today. Um, You know, your show, this show, and your other platforms are such an excellent resource for families facing Alzheimer's, and I know you're a supporter of many activists as well. Um, So we're really happy um, to be here today. Thank you. Wonderful. I'm going to go ahead and introduce our other two panelists, and then we'll get on with our questions here. So the next person I'm going to introduce is Jennifer Mullenhoff, and she's the Associate Director of Us Against Alzheimer's um, for for women. And she also manages their digital media for the whole family of um, Us Against Alzheimer's networks. Jennifer brings over 20 years of experience from both private and public sectors to the organization. And she started her career basically consulting with technology where she managed client relationships for networking and application uh, development projects. She left that private sector to develop her um, own career in education, and after earning her teacher credentials, Jennifer taught at a secondary level at both public and private schools and then decided to um, transition her focus on educational policy. She has worked a wide range of educational institutions and nonprofits to conduct research and analyze data and policies to recommend strategic and programmatic improvements. Jennifer has her master's in teaching from the Teachers College of Columbia University, and um, she also graduated uh, summa cum laude from Rutgers University with a BA in history. So welcome aboard, Jennifer, and how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks so much, Lori, for having me on the show and giving uh, the Us Against Alzheimer's team an opportunity to share our work with your audience. Well, I'm very excited to get this conversation going because you guys are really doing some such cool things. And I think uh, as broad as your audience is, I'm I'm hoping that I can raise awareness even more in terms of what it is you're doing and um, and why the passion is so strong at your organization. Um, But first, let me go ahead and introduce uh, Stephanie uh, Monroe. And Stephanie is the Associate Director for the African American Network Against Alzheimer's. Uh, She's an attorney with three decades of federal and public policy experience. Um, She has served most recently as the Assistant Secretary of Education for Civil Rights from 2005 to 2009, prior to serving in the executive branch 
um, Stephanie held a number of key staff positions in the United States Congress, including Chief Counsel of the U.S. Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, as well as the Chief Counsel and Staff Director of the Senate Subcommittees of Children and Families. She is widely regarded as a veteran political strategist with um, demonstrated experience and effectiveness in working collaboratively with members of both political parties. And she has an emphasis on domestic policy issues involving health, education, uh, child welfare, individual empowerment, and community services. She has um, helped develop and negotiate dozens of bills um, from policy inception to um, actual entackment. So welcome, Stephanie. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, and thank you so much for being for letting us get on the show, and we look forward to uh, a really wonderful dialogue this morning. Well, great. You know, I always like to start out the conversation with a really simple question because I think people are always fascinated. What draws people to, to you know, step up to the plate and really get involved at the level that you are? And so, Jenny, I'm going to throw the first first question to you. You know, what got you uh, involved? Were, did you have some type of experience family-wise with dementia that got this cause under your skin? Um, you know, I, I don't. Um, it's actually, I, you know, the more I learn, the more I learn how unusual that is, but I don't have a, a personal a family connection. Um, you know, I think, but I have to say, I mean, so I think what drew me to it is my interest in in stories and people and, and journeys that that so many people are taking. And I, I, I think what I'm just so inspired by the... Um, and I have really a privilege through the Activist Network to work with a lot of individuals to have a lot of contact with people who are coping with Alzheimer's. And it's so inspiring to me to, um, you know, to learn about what people are facing on a daily basis. So, you know, and just, just coping with so well. So I don't have a personal connection, um, but I, I just I think that so many people you know, as we know, coming down the pike, who you know, so many people are coping with it now um, and will be, you know, as baby boomers retire. So it's certainly a, an enormous, you know, issue that the country's facing. But I just, um, I, I, yeah, as I said, just I'm really inspired by the many people who are so generous with their time and their personal stories. So um, I think that that's kind of what is so engaging for me um, on this particular issue. Great. Wonderful. How about you, Jennifer? Have you been personally touched by Alzheimer's or dementia? I have um, in two ways. My husband's grandmother had Alzheimer's disease um, and died uh, exactly, uh, well, not exactly, but uh, about seven years ago after having the, the disease for almost a decade. Um, and what struck me the most about you know that experience um was watching my husband's mother um care you know sort of cobble together a care solution um for her mother who had requested to stay to always stay in her home um 
And uh, so that I, I watched my, my mother-in-law struggle with that um, and agonize over many of the decisions related to that. Um, I also was struck by the difference in, um, you know, the the woman that had been described as, you know, the uh, Sylvia's, you know, vibrancy and and her sense of humor and her, you know, the her, her just dynamism, dynamism, um, and which was in marked contrast to the the person that I knew at the end of her life, um, who who's you know. Um, whole personality uh, was sort of stripped away by the disease. Um, in addition, my um, one of my closest friends uh, who uh, is, you know, in her 40s and has two young children and a family of her own, her father, who is in his 70s, um, has Alzheimer's disease. And um, in the last six months, I've seen my friend go from being uh, – you know, the daughter of, um, you know, a person with Alzheimer's disease who, disease who was being cared for primarily by her mother to, be, to becoming the full, um, full-time caregiver. Uh, so my, my, my close friend um, used to help her mom with the care of her father, and then her mother um, was diagnosed with uh, pancreatic cancer. She lost her mother within, you know, two months, and um, and my friend was just thrust into this new role of trying to manage um, not only the death of her mother, um, but also the care of her father, and um, and and just all of the, the you can't can't even imagine, or I'm sure you can, many of the, of the people who are um, listening to this show, you know what that involves, both emotionally and also just you know um, financially. So that's been um, really uh, heartbreaking for me to watch, and um, and it has made me very proud uh, that you know of our pr- proud to be involved in the fight uh, for for those struggling with the disease. Okay, wonderful. And how about you, Stephanie? Have you been personally touched by dementia or Alzheimer's disease? Well, um, unfortunately, yes. Um, We've had some family members who um, have had the disease, um, and I'm watching uh, my father go through um, a different type of dementia, but our family's just sort of entering that process. And I guess, you know, the interesting thing in seeing, you know, both friends and family go through it is are the different phases um, that you go through, the denial, um, the shame that some feel, I think, with with having the disease or, or having things happen that they can't really explain or understand then you know misunderstanding of of organizations in the community like the church who you would think would really be there for support and um they don't really understand the disease and um you know because it's been one that typically if a person um uh, begins experiencing this disease they stay home and so they're not in those kinds of support community networks um and then all the decision making that comes around that not just the caregiving but at what point do you, you know, tell a loved one, a parent, that they have to stop driving? Um, how do you, you know, continue to let them sort of have a dignified, um, you know, moving into um, old age, right, um, but at the same time protect them? So all of these challenges um, I think I've you know, witnessed and are now, you know, beginning to experience sort of from a personal, from a personal level. And no matter how oh. much you know... <laughs> 
being an attorney and understanding and working on this issue what those different phases are as a child, you still go through them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very, very true, no matter how much you know. And, and you know, you can be the expert in um, – but your family never looks at you like the expert in your industry. I mean, I hear that all the time from people. It's like, I'm an attorney or I'm a financial planner or I'm a this or I'm a that. And, but they don't believe me. <laughs> you know? so, That's um you know, we're none of us are any different. We all struggle with these things, and I I love the comments that you 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 uh, you touched upon um, some some very specific things. In fact, we just had a two hour special on driving and dementia, which was really interesting. So, if people have not listened to that, I'd highly encourage you to do that. Um, the conversation was with those that have dementia and the decisions that they've made. We had a doctor, we had somebody from the insurance um, industry somebody who used to work in the state patrol for quite a while and is now an educator. So it was really a very diverse group um, having this conversation. And it was so interesting how perceptions changed once they actually talked and uh, saw somebody with dementia in early stages because that perception is still end age only, you know, and there's a lot more to this game than, than just the end age. So thank you each for, for sharing with our, with our audience so we have a little bit more background. Jenny, I'm going to ask you if you can just kind of give us kind of an umbrella of, you know, us against Alzheimer's and how the heck did it get started and, and why? Well, um, us against Alzheimer's was founded by um, George and Trish Vredenberg, um, who, um, and I, I'm going to say two and a half years ago, and Jennifer can correct me if I'm wrong in that time frame, but uh, really felt that that we needed, the country needed, a really aggressive approach to finding a cure, prevention, or treatment for Alzheimer's by 2020. This felt like it that, that up until that point, the pace had just been too potty, you know, that there were no results. So they started us against Alzheimer's with that goal to end Alzheimer's by 2020. Um, and so what, what that means is essentially that, you know, one of the, what, you know, what that, what that really means is that, that um, you know, the question is how, how, to best, how to best do that. And George believes that it's going to happen in the lab through research. Um, and that, well, how does, how does the research happen? The bottom line is that that takes money. It takes research dollars. And in large part, that means federal dollars. Um, and so that's so. So our goal, you know, is to sort of say, well, how do, how do we make that happen? And one way to accomplish it is to mobilize people who are affected by Alzheimer's and to um, do things like let their members of Congress know that Alzheimer's research funding is important, and just to generally raise the the profile of, of Alzheimer's. Um, and so that's where this network piece kind of comes into play. Um, that you know that George determined that um, that the networks were an effective way to mobilize the affected groups of people, and we all share that same goal, um, but have slightly different approaches to the problem. And again, it's just that you know prevention, cure, or treatment for Alzheimer's by 2020. And so George's basic question is, how do we make that happen? And so um, so this is one way we're we're trying to to make that happen. Um, so, so I'd say that's a description of, of us against Alzheimer's generally, and Jen and Stephanie may want to add to that. 
Jen, was there anything that you wanted to to add? Well, I think that um, when George and Trish decided to apply themselves to this challenge after seeing Trish's mother struggle with this disease and, and it wreaking havoc on their family, that when they started, you know, talking with people in industry and, and also um, members of Congress, uh, you know, about why the disease hasn't received the level of funding that other diseases have um, with uh, despite the fact that Alzheimer's is the most expensive disease to American families and taxpayers, you know, why hasn't it received the attention of other diseases like heart disease and cancer and HIV? What they heard from members of Congress is that they weren't hearing from their constituents about it. You know, that George and Trish were the first people talking to them about this disease. Um, and, and that might be a, a you know, an, an exaggeration. But, but I think that the, the, the takeaway that they had was, wow, more people, we know people are truly struggling with this disease, and we need to get very aggressive um, about, you know, uh, communicating that more progress needs to be made, um, and quickly, because this isn't just about the emotional um, pain of losing a loved one to this you know, horrifying disease, but it's a fiscal crisis for our country, um, given the cost of the disease. Um, so, you know, I think that, uh, you know, mobilizing people to take action is the driving force um, behind Us Against Alzheimer's. And, um, and as Ginny said, each one of our networks focuses on a, you know, a key community, um, but we all share the same mission. And that's okay. Cute prevent or treat and ultimately find a cure for the disease within the decade. Well, one of the things that I really love about your organization is you speak to all levels. And um, and I think you do it very, very well. And uh, to me, that's been an issue in the past in terms of, of equaling out <clears throat> voices. And, I, you know, I, I just even how you guys uh, pull things together for emails to notify Congress is so simple, and, and I just so appreciate it because you really have made it one-click easy um, for people to get involved. And, and I know in past, sometimes people would get a little nervous, going, I don't have the time, and it's going to... But you guys have really streamlined a lot of things in a lot of different ways, and I'm and I'm anxious for our audience to hear hear more about that because um you really have made it uh, in my in my mind painless um to to become an advocate because an advocate uh kind of is a big scary word for a lot of people you know people don't even like to volunteer let alone be an advocate that sounds like you're wearing you know more shields <laughs> and, and carrying the torch and um you've really found different ways to help people find their niche where their passion is strong, and I think when people's passion is strong, it's effortless. You know, it's something that they want to do, they're comfortable talking about, and so um, I, I think that that's a critical um, uh, 
strategic piece that you guys have put into place, which is which is very nice. So let's go ahead and um, Jenny, let's first talk about the the activists against Alzheimer's network, and if you can explain exactly what that is, if that's mm-hmm. just the the umbrella for the other groups, and we can roll into those, or if that role has a, a specific role in and of itself as well. Yeah, and, and I'll just just to um, just to add to what you were just saying um, before I talk about the activist network. I think it's really easy for individuals to feel like my one voice isn't really going to make a difference. And I think you know what what we believe is that no, what, that every single voice really has an impact, and that's kind of our message that that um, you know taken together, you know, hope that you know the hope is that there are thousands of you know voices, but but we really do believe that you know every single voice and, and and members of Congress have said that like those individual voices really matter. So um, so yeah, um, I direct the um, Activists Against Alzheimer's Network, or the Activist Network, and what we what I primarily do is support sort of two, it's sort of twofold. But support the work that that activists are doing in their communities um, by promoting it. Through social media, providing we provide strategic support when we can. Um, you know, had um, for you know various you know had individuals come to us and say, um, like Matthew Smith, who has the spaces between your fingers project, to say, how can I work advocacy into what I'm doing? So we might help them with that, or um, you know, James Creasy is planning an event. We might say, okay, how can we you know sort of work with you and your press, or you know that kind of thing, or um, just working with with various people um in, in that way to support their work and we're so and we're also a resource for um in, you know alzheimer's related information that can be helpful you know to individual activists um and these are the people who come to us and say i want to do more or you know how can i get the word out about my project my blog my book um and we also connect activists with with each other um we have monthly conference calls which um, Laurie, I know you've participated in, and um, um, I'm sure some of your listeners, where you know we will have a couple of speakers on a topic. Most recently, we had Jeffrey Ittrich um, of the Alzheimer's Disease Cooperative Study talked about a cool project there. Marty Bailey talking about a memory cafe that she runs at Sibley Hospital, and then we hope to really have a conversation, whatever is on people's minds, and anyone, any activist. Um, is welcome to call in, just listen, ask a question, you know, be part of that conversation. We've had some great conversations and really good ideas, you know, that that um, that come out of those. Um, and um, you know, and we also our hope then is that activists will also engage their own personal network. Um, and that was again George's vision when he started us against Alzheimer's and these networks is that people would. You know, take our actions and push them out to their own neck. Whether it's a personal network, a professional network, but that's where our strength is. Um, it really is it's just numbers. Um, you know, and I, I think that Lori, it's very similar to what you were describing as your approach: sharing information, working together, and that's really what George is about and 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 we're about. So, um, so the activists. So, I, as I said, I work with individuals on projects or events. Many activists have also written for our By 2020 blog, which is on our website, 
at usagainstalzheimers.com. We have a really great blog series, and it's um, Trish Radenberg's, um, one of our founders, blogs, and then we have wonderful guest series. Um, and so I guess you know, that my network is working with individuals, also reaching out to the group. For instance, this summer, the Summer Appropriations Actions, we asked activists in Iowa and Kansas uh, to contact Senators Harkin and Moran regarding Alzheimer's research funding. So we'll kind of, you know, go approach to reach out to our grassroots um, in various states on particular actions, but constantly just trying to amplify our efforts and amplify the efforts of various activists. Again, all in the name of that cure, treatment or prevention by 2020, sort of moving the ball forward and how we can best do that. So we also just started a USA2 a community group on Facebook, which is a kind of family caregiver support group. Um, and so we have, a, we have several different projects going, very different than the African American Network and Women's Network um, in some of our day-to-day activities, but always focused on that goal. So... That's it in a well, nutshell. <laughs> okay. Well, wonderful. I, um, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't. You had mentioned uh, Jim Creasy um, is going to be having an event coming up. Um, and for those of you that aren't familiar with with James, um, he has Jiminy Wicket, which is an adaptive croquet game, which is absolutely fabulous. And if you haven't checked it out, I'd highly recommend that you go to Jiminy Wicket. Dot com, or you can just Google James Creasy as well, or feel free to email myself or, or uh, Virginia, and uh, we'll get you information on yeah. on that. So, and I should just I'll just add also really briefly that one this is a, a very typical uh, kind of connection. Martha Stettinius, an author who's moderating our Facebook group for us, Lisa Hirsch, also a blogger and author who has written a blog post for us. You know, we support what they're doing. They support what we're doing. So, always trying to trying to kind of get the message out to the largest audience and really working together towards that goal. So. Oh, wonderful! I've had both those women on the show. They're just they're both doing very very neat things. So great. Yeah, you're well, a great supporter. Well, let's hear from Stephanie um, on the African American Network Against Alzheimer's Disease. Stephanie, can you tell us a little bit about that group? Absolutely. Um, well, we approached this organization because, or, or we are developing this network because um, we learned that African Americans were, you know, twice as likely to develop Alzheimer's disease as uh, non-Hispanic white Americans, and. While Alzheimer's is the sixth leading cause of death for all Americans, it's actually the fourth leading cause of death for older African Americans. Um, we were also very concerned because we know that you know the disparate impact of this disease will extend beyond people who have actually been diagnosed to their loved ones, their children, their extended families um, who often serve as, as unpaid caregivers. So there's not a lot of, of knowledge about the reasons behind um, this startling statistic, um, researchers believe that it, there is a link to um, the number of people who have diabetes and, and other types of vascular disease. Um, but like overall Alzheimer's research, there has not been a level of research to, to really direct itself toward understanding this disparity. Um, 
we know more about what we think doesn't cause the disease than actually what does cause the disease. And so we're, our network's going to be working to um, not just bring African-Americans' voice into the conversation, but to specifically recruiting African-Americans into um, clinical trials and, and studies. One of the most horrible things I think that could happen is if we actually found a, an effective treatment or a cure for Alzheimer's and then found that it did not work for African-Americans, which in fact, has been the case with a couple of other drugs that have come on the market for other um, diseases. And um, there are several clinical trials that are that are going to be launched um, this fall, and thousands of, of individuals are needed um, to find out whether those treatments will actually work. And so one of our efforts will be to get on the ground, um, recruit people um, through a creative um, community outreach plan that we're putting together, um, to actually get people to sign up for these for these trials and for these registries. Okay, wonderful. Well, a much much needed um, network. So it's exciting to to hear about that. Definitely. What kind of response have you been getting since since you've kicked this off, Stephanie? Well, we haven't actually kicked it off yet, and so we. Um, okay. That's that's a wonderful thing we can announce on your show that we actually are formally launching um, this September 18th and 19th. And okay. uh, that'll be in Washington, D.C., and um, we're going to have uh, several events, um, an issue forum that'll be hosted um, by us at the uh, Congressional Black Caucus Annual Legislative Conference at the Convention Center on uh, September 19th from 2 until 4 p.m., and we're going to have... Um, you know, people will be able to share both their personal experiences. We'll have a researcher speak to... Um, the disease and, and what we believe are some of the causes um, and, and things that people can actually do to uh, build up reserves um, to, to allow their brain to withstand potentially some of the uh, the onslaught of this disease. Um, we're going to release a groundbreaking report on the cost and the impact of this disease on African Americans. Um, and then that evening we're hosting a play um, uh, at the Atlas Theater in Washington, D.C., called Forget Me Not. Um, it's from the award-winning playwright Garrett Davis. And um, that'll be a great um, outreach opportunity. We'll have a nice reception and a play. And again, looking at this from a more of a theatrical and at times humorous point of view, um, but you know, making making sure that everyone understands what this disease looks like in, in an actual family. And so... Um, I think our outreach going forward will be very community focused and will include um health fairs and actually offering, you know, opportunities for people in the community to come in and get um tested for a variety of of disorders and diseases um and then paired with um this play we're planning to target um key cities throughout the United States and take our show on the roll road um following our launch in September. Oh, wonderful! Well, I hope you come to the St. Paul, Minneapolis area. I would, well, uh, I yeah, I would love to meet you. It sounds like a wonderful event, um, and uh, you'll have to keep me posted on that. I'll be more than glad to to push out information on on the blog and so forth. Uh, you know, when that time comes. So great! Well, thank you so much for all you're doing, um, Jennifer. Let's hear from you. You're in charge of the Women Against Us Alzheimer's Network. Can you tell us what all that entails, and and are you rolled out yet, or is that something coming? Uh, no, we have officially launched, and I'll I'll talk okay. about our, our our launch um, in a in a minute. Um, 
so like the African-American network, uh, women, um, or like African-Americans, women are um, not only more likely to get Alzheimer's disease, but they are also more likely to be caregivers. And the the real focus of the Women's Network is to um, to raise awareness about Alzheimer's disease as a women's issue, not only a health issue, but a financial issue for women. Um, and we believe that Alzheimer's disease is rapidly becoming the greatest health crisis of the 20th, 21st century, um, and, and that's especially for women. So um, that's our, our focus, um, and we, um, since last August, have recruited over 50 women leaders from around our nation, representing almost 20 states. Um, these women leaders have demonstrated a commitment to um, getting involved um, in some way with Alzheimer's disease. We have researchers um, leaders of nonprofits that focus on Alzheimer's care, uh, people that are experts in um, marketing and communications, people in the media um, and entertainment space. So we have this incredible, diverse group of women who um, want to um, play an active role in leading our country towards a cure. And we launched in May, um, we had uh, our first women's summit in Washington, D.C., um, and we uh, had a series of presentations from um, uh, the federal uh, agencies who are responsible for enacting the National Alzheimer's Plan, um, as well as researchers who focus on um, the, the sex and gender-based differences um, as it relates to Alzheimer's disease. Um, and we also uh, had 30 meetings with members of Congress um, f that resulted in um, a tremendous amount of outreach and, and, and engagement, but specifically um, resulted in a letter that was um, drafted by the Women's Caucus and led by uh, Congresswoman Doris Matsui uh, requesting that the NIH um, provide a sort of formal report on uh, the investment that's been made to date in uh, the specific sex-based uh, research uh, in Alzheimer's disease. Um, the belief is that uh, that there, that there are that, that more much more needs to be known about why women are more likely to get Alzheimer's disease, um, and that we can learn a great deal about the treatment of the disease by doing so, um, as we've learned with other major diseases, most notably heart disease. Wonderful. Now, um, it, well, it's exciting to hear um, that you're. That Alzheimer's, us against Alzheimer's, is attacking um, the situation by, you know, digging deeper into the women's group and uh, into the African Americans and um, into just the the activists themselves, different positionings. I, I think it's just a brilliant way to to raise awareness again and find people in their passion to really be able to to talk and come clear with this. Now, um, 
Ginny, I'm going to ask you, there's an, another group that's going to be launching, I, I don't believe it's launched yet, um, the Hispanics Against uh, Alzheimer's Network. Has that one launched yet, or where, what stage is that in? Um, it, it has not, and the statistics um, in that group are very similar, um, I believe, to, the, to uh, Alzheimer's among African Americans. And we're looking at um, 2014, um, for launch of that network. Okay. And then there's also right. the, re the researchers network as well, which I'm happy to say a few words about. Okay. Um, just in our colleague Liz Plant um, directs that network, which is a little bit different focus. Um, it's a network of uh, right now 370 leading researchers um, who believe that it's possible to prevent and treat Alzheimer's disease, but their focus is, again, with increased research funding and other um, systemic reforms around drug development. Um, so their activities are very focused. Um, recently, letter to House and Senate Appropriations Committee regarding research funding, comments to HHS Secretary Sebelius um, in support of time-based milestones um, in the national plan and other activities uh, like that, that. So they really work together as a group um, of to, to get the voice of, of you know, well-regarded um, researchers um, out there. So not really a grassroots focus, but, um, again, same goal. But very important goal. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's pretty exciting to have, you know, over 300 researchers, you know, teaming up. Um, that's that's a large statement in and of itself. I, you know, one of the biggest problems that, that I have seen with this disease is that, the approach has been so siloed, and everybody is doing things separate and um, trying to replicate what the next guy is doing, and it's such a waste of funds. And if we can work together, um, you know, we can utilize and be so much more powerful in terms of sharing knowledge and information because this this is a disease not one person is going to solve. It's going to take all of us working together at all different levels. And again, I, I love the concept of your network in terms of bringing everybody together. When I do <clears throat> my trainings and stuff, one of the, even the battles that I've had is is the um, the separatism that people see. It's like, well, who do you speak to? Do you talk with people with dementia? Do you talk with the um, personal and family caregivers? Or do you talk to the professionals? And you know, my attitude is until we get everybody in the same room talking the same language, we are not going to be able to make the progress we need because each of us affects the other. And, um, you know, it's kind of like welcome to the big boys club. we got to learn how to play in the playground here in a nice, nice fashion. And I think that you're really helping us do that. So, again, I, I thank your organization for for all um, all of the work and, and the creative design in which you brought to the, the organization um, is really uh, very exciting, very, very exciting. Um, well, I can't Lori, I think you just touched uh -huh. on something that is sort of our driving theme, is, and, and it is clear from our name. It's us against Alzheimer's. It's going to take all of us working together um, in a variety of ways to um, – to address this disease, um, not only in terms of, you know, the crisis, uh, uh, the health crisis and finding the treatment options and ideally a cure, but also the, you know, uh, financial issues related to paying for long-term care. And, I mean, 
and those are just two of the the, the many um, sort of aspects of this disease, but it will take all of us. Yeah, I I definitely agree. I'm with you on that one. That's for sure. Um, I'm interested in knowing, and we've only got about 15 minutes left, and time just kind of flies here, um, but what are some of your biggest challenges and roadblocks that you've seen or for the new networks that are coming up, what you're anticipating, and and how are you going to face those? And I'm going to go up to Stephanie first on this one. I'm sorry, I... Um... <laughs> I threw you for a loop. Yeah, I was looking for, um, what I'm looking for, I know that your group hasn't formally started yet, Stephanie. You've got the African-American Network Against Alzheimer's. Um, But I'm just wondering, you know, what are you thinking are going to be your biggest challenges with the group or roadblocks um, in terms of, you know, I guess how how you're going to attack it. And, And what are you... What are some workarounds? Have you have you given some thought to that? Well, I think one of the challenges is that um, engaging African Americans really requires a lot of a very high personal touch, and um, you know I think typically you know we're not going to um, be relying um, on emails. Um, we really are going to have to go into the communities to build trust which is a big issue. Um, the African-American community has had some unfortunate um, uh, dealings with um, with clinical trials in the past and dealing with research in the past. And so we really have to go into communities and working with the community um, rather than sort of parachuting in a solution, um, but working with the community, identify the leaders, um, work with them in terms of identifying um mechanisms to get people through the churches, through other community organizations, sororities, fraternities, um, and then do a lot of education because this is a disease that where there's been a lot of denial and a lot of shame in the African-American community, and we really have to bring it out in the open and then help um, help the communities develop strategies um, and hopefully leave behind networks of individuals who are then able to carry on um, the work of educating and enlisting and recruiting and advocating. Um, and so that really, I think, is the, is the challenge for our network. Okay, great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, Jennifer, how about for your network? Well, I think that um, the main challenge is, you know, how to build a movement um, and engage and I'll say women, but I'm really talking about everyone, um, in fighting this fight. You know, we've seen other uh, disease movements that have achieved um, incredible things, like breast cancer and HIV, and yet we we haven't been able to mobilize, you know, the hundreds of thousands or millions of people that we need to to make um, decisions for members of Congress very easy, uh, you know. So I think that that is something that we're constantly struggling struggling with, um, trying to expand the number of people that are engaged in the fight and are taking action. Um, and and really, I, I think 
we're a small organization with limited funding. Um, so, so certainly funding is, is a critical piece of this, and, you know, we're working hard to raise money to support our work. Um, but, you know, in, to, to really expand to the, at the level that we would like to, you know, we would need significantly more funding. Um, so we, we work, we're as agile and scrappy as we can possibly be um, to get as many people engaged as we can, um, but, it, you know, we are impatient and have a strong sense of urgency. And so um, we, you know, that's, that's sort of what we're struggling with, I think, is our, our biggest challenge. Um, and, um, and we've done a lot of thinking about, well, why aren't people engaged? Um, and why aren't they, you know, uh, participating in, um, in demanding a, a cure the way they have with other diseases? And, you know, we have some theories and we try to, um, you know, approach people in, in ways that work for them. As you've noted, we have, you know, pretty easy um, ways to, to take action. But, um, but even then, you know, we're, we'd like to see more, more people get involved. Okay, great. Um, Jenny, how about you? Do you want to talk about the other groups and what, uh, you know, maybe um, highlight the um, the research group and, and, you know, the individual ones on what you think uh, might be some of the, the roadblocks that, that each is facing and how you're attacking that? Well, I think, um, you know, I think I, I can probably most knowledgeably about the activist network, you know, and I'm very fortunate. I mean, I, I work with people who have come to us against Alzheimer's and said, how can I get more engaged? So so that's that's easy. Um, I, I would just echo what what Jen said is that, you know, it's that taking taking that step, clicking on that email, and it really is a numbers game. Um, and so, you know, I, I'll... <laughs> I'll, I'll take this, you know, moment to say, you know, what what people could do. You know, what we need is more people to join us against Alzheimer's, which they can do by going to our website, um, which is usagainstalzheimers.org. And we also have a really cool text to join feature. So if you have a, a smartphone, you can text the word stop all, S T O P A L Z, just stop all, to the number two two eight two eight. And you can ask your friends to join and, you know, your family to join. Um, and so I, I think Jen put it really well, that it's, it's um, the bottom line is numbers, members of Congress hearing from constituents, and so how can we best make that happen? And I think we're doing a better and better job, and social media is a wonderful way um, that we're engaging more and more with people. We have a really growing Facebook presence and a great page, if, if your listeners haven't been to our Facebook page, it's, um, it's a great combination of interesting articles, great personal stories, um, blog posts, just a whole, we have a great social media team. So just a really great variety of information and wonderful engagement from, from that group. So um, really, I think, very lively and informative um, but continuing to grow that piece and how can social media really amplify our efforts. Um, you know, that that in some ways can be easier than, than through email. So so I think that for these for the grassroots networks that the, that's really the challenge. Um and uh so 
Well, great. And you've got, I just went to your Facebook page. You guys have um, 60, over 65,000 people following you. But, you know, it's always nice to get more. So, again, if you're listening, mm-hmm. go to Us Against Alzheimer's and just make that click and go ahead and share it with your friends. I mean, if they if they don't want to join or like it, that's fine. But give them the opportunity because so many times people just don't even know the resources exist. So, that's why the power of your click is is so so important. Um, it's you know they've always said the, it's the little things that matter, and um, that has a lot of power behind it. So I, I would really encourage you to um, to move forward with that and be supportive and um, and get involved. You know, see if any of these networks fit for you um, or if you just kind of want to be a voyeur and kind of check out what they're doing. They've got a great newsletter. They've they've got just wonderful information to keep you up to date. When the time's right for you, you'll you'll know. Um, but then don't procrastinate. Then, you know, jump in with both feet feet and um and know that, you know, being an advocate doesn't have to be scary and it doesn't have to be overly structured. Um, anything you can do really does matter. And so you just have to let people know what your lines are, what your interests are. Maybe you've got another group that you think would be a really powerful group that you'd like to talk with us against Alzheimer's designing. Um, I'm sure that's how these ones came to be, is somebody brought up, why don't we why don't we target this group? There's a need here. There's an individualized passion. We need to approach these people a little bit differently. And um, again, let your voice let your voice be heard. Um, I'm going to just run back to each of you quickly here and just see if there's anything that you would like to like to state. And Jennifer, I'm going to go to you. Is there any anything else that you'd like to add? We're just wrapping up here in terms of our time. Well, I, I'd like to say that, you know, I don't have an advocacy background, um, you know, or didn't have one until I um, – started working with Us Against Alzheimer's a few years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. But as I've gotten more experience with it, um, I have found it really empowering uh, to communicate with my members of Congress and to let them know what I care about. Um, and, And I think that while it is extremely, you know, I'll admit, I was intimidated the first time I called um, my Congresswoman's um, office. Uh, It was also, I don't know, it made me feel really proud, proud that I, you know, made the call and um, and proud that I had, you know, the other thing is that we do, you as everyone, as a constituent, has has the ability and um, and the right to contact your member of Congress to let them know that, you know, this issue is important to you. Um, and, and it's a part of being a participant in our society, our democracy, and it's, a, you know, and, and we're lucky to, to have that, that to, to, to live in a society that allows that. So while it may seem intimidating um, and, um, and, and something that isn't, you know, possible, it actually is. It's easy to pick up the phone or Google your congressperson, find their number, call their office, get and put, they'll put you in touch with a staff person who, who focuses on health issues, and you can just introduce yourself and let them know, you know, that you care about this issue. Wonderful. Stephanie, how about you? Anything else you'd like to add? Well, just to echo those comments, um, it's easy to do and it's really important to do. 
uh, you know, someone who worked on Capitol Hill, I can tell you that, you know, members of Congress typically don't engage on an area unless they've been asked to by a constituent. And so one or two or three phone calls really can make a difference in both the way a member votes and the way that they think about an issue. And that one person who's willing to come in and have a personal five or ten minute um, conversation with the member is something that they will remember the rest of their lives. Um, those kinds of anecdotal experiences really do shape public policy. Um, the other thing I would say um, in terms of people, you know, feeling like, gee, you know, I'm not really a lobbyist. I really, you know, I don't know how to do those special interests. I often tell folks, you know, we all have special interests, and who's better to represent your interest than yourself? So we really mm-hmm. need to be a voice, and we are empowered to really do it. Okay, wonderful. Now, I, there might be a caller on the line. I'm not quite sure, so I'm just going to put this person live. You're calling from a 646 number, and it looks like they've push, pushed one to get into the queue. 646 number, you are live. Did you have a question or a comment that you wanted to make? Yeah, Lori, hi. It's Lisa Hirsch. How are you? Well, he- hi, Lisa. Hi. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> hi, Jenny. Jenny, how hey, are you? Lisa. Good. And to the other ladies that I don't know, hi. Um, so Hi, Lisa. Hi. <laughs> um, I like to consider myself a uh, big advocate, and uh, I think the world of you, Lori, and us against Alzheimer's for sure. So this was interesting. So we just got notice now that my mom got on Medicaid, and so now they gave us 60 days that we have to get her into a nursing home. So with us, everyone trying to get prevention, cure, money, funding for the disease. What, as I was listening to your phone call, you know, I was, you know, every state with Medicaid is different. So I'm really like bringing this out to you that that I have another job for us against Alzheimer's. I mean, I sign everything that goes to the Congress people, but it's it's the amount of money. I, I know in New York, if my mom lived here, I could get her 24-7 help from Medicaid in her home. And in Florida, that can't be done. And the cost of these nursing homes are outrageous. Um, so it's, it's you know, we're talk, talking about health care and money and draining the country. Um, and this disease, yeah. with that, that is an... For a lot of the people that have caregivers and the people that don't know me, yeah. my mom is is this they can last for years. I mean, yeah, and actually, George George um, Brainberg is actually part of the long term care commission that's looking at um, long term care issues. You know, cost obviously being the 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 huge one. So yeah, we agree it's a, an enormous issue. Right. So so I know that if I kept my mother in a home and her caregivers that she has were on twenty four seven, and and that's another reason why we're going to start moving her in. Uh, well, we have to move her in and put her on Medicaid because the money isn't there to have twenty four seven in her home in New York. We're not in Florida. I could have hired someone 24-7, and Medicaid would have paid, which was a lot less money than the nursing home. So it's it's uh, it's a comment. <laughs> yeah. And I thank everyone for what you do, Lori, and your commitments, and Ginny, and Jennifer, and Stephanie. 
Wonderful. Well, thank thanks, you for Lisa. calling in, Lisa. It's always nice to hear from you. Thank you. Okay. Well, ladies, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up our session because I've got a, another uh, interview after this. But I, um, prior to doing that, I do want to ask one question because I have had a lot of people ask me this. Um, Jenny, and I don't know if, if you have an answer to this or if you guys have even talked about this, but have you given any thought to um, embracing the Purple Angel Project into um, Us Against Alzheimer's at all? With the, because that's kind of the new global sign for the for the disease. Um, has there been any chatter or discussion on that topic? Well, I think I think we, I think a little bit, um, and it's you know I think uh, maybe you and I should communicate a, a, about it a bit after the show. Um, I, I think in part it's you know as Jen said, we're kind of a small or organization doing a lot of work and so making choices mm-hmm. about okay where can we put our energies and so you know sometimes something like that which is a great idea we think you know great go you know go with it i mean i know i've seen it on your website and, and other places which is terrific which is wonderful um so um so i i think that it's just you know hard to get you know very involved in in every project so that may just be be one that we we just haven't made a decision on yet, or um, you know had time to really delve into. But I'm happy to talk with you further after after this. Okay. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, and I didn't mean to put you on yeah. the spot. It was just it was one of those things that you know in terms of raising voice, and um, I just think it would be uh, a nice yeah. a nice thing. So we'll talk. We'll talk. Well, and about I think that that ideally it, mm-hmm. it takes it catches fire, and you know. Among you know, with you and with you know all the other activists, you know that's great. You know if it if it happens that way, but but let's talk more about it. Okay, well sounds good. Well, thank you all for spending so much time with us today. I really, really, truly appreciate it so much. And again, I would encourage people to go to usagainstalzheimers.org, um, or you can you know just find them on Facebook. Go ahead and like their page and um, become p- part of the community. And again, if you just want to be a voyeur for a little while and see what's going on, um, and don't want to step up and click or or uh, do anything active at this point that's okay you know test the waters but it's a it's a great organization and i i can't speak uh, highly enough for all that they have done in in really an incredibly short short amount of time so um again thank you all for being with us and we will definitely be in touch in the future bye now thanks lori thank you lori thank you I'm going to go ahead and um, just kind of do our little mid-session break here, and uh, then I'll get into introducing our second guest. Um, A lot's been going on in this last week, and so I always like to highlight things. Our last uh, radio show, I had uh, Sherry Snelling on, who is the author of Cast of Caregivers, which is an exceptional book, and she's also the founder of the Caregiver Club. She is also one of the top ten with me for um, top ten influencers for Alzheimer's through Share Care. We also had uh, Diana Way and Lynn Denny on from the Way Consulting, and um, 
Diana had written a wonderful book called I Was Thinking, and it's all about how to communicate simply with someone with dementia. So if you haven't listened to that show, I would recommend that you go back and do that. Um, also, our last Dementia Chats was on July 23rd, and that was a two-hour special on driving. I had mentioned that a little bit earlier. And um, that's a, a wonderful um, a wonderful episode. Plus, we also um, did the live radio show on the 23rd with that as well. So you've got kind of two back-to-backs on driving and dementia that has good conversation. Our next Dementia Chats will be um, August 13th. And I'm thinking that I'm not for sure, but I'm thinking our title is really going to be something about the value of relationships, the impact and the importance that friendships have on on this disease because I think so many times people are isolated. So that's kind of what I'm leaning towards. But if you've got ideas, let me know as well. And then for past blogs um, that I want to point out, there was a great video by Geraldine Boyle from the UK that's all about living with dementia. And it shows real positive ways to live with dementia. There was also a free book giveaway, Miles from Home, by Colleen Lanner. And then if you hadn't seen the PBS Frontline Report, Life and Death in Assisted Living, that might be of interest to you. Uh, There is also information that was just a fabulous article, and actually it's an older article, but I hadn't seen it until now, and that's one of the wonders of the the Internet, um, with Donna Marie Baker and her husband, and it's all about what it's like to live with dementia. It's a very detailed article, loaded, just loaded with information. Again, if you are looking for an Alzheimer's Association anywhere in the world, please go ahead and um, just Google Alzheimer's Disease International, and they can assist you. If you're looking for a study, the Alzheimer's Studies Group um, or the Alzheimer's Team on Facebook can help you with their new Tau study, and the Lewy Body Association, um, Lewy Body Dementia Association, is again a wonderful resource if you're dealing specifically with that type of dementia. I'd also like to just give a shout out to Jane with Puzzles um, with Me, and also to Coral Health, who has that wonderful app called Music First. I I'm just such a big, big believer in um, the power of music um, with dementia and keeping people connected and helping us live better lives with with dementia here as a whole. Um, Again, if you're interested in making a comment, please use your chat box or you can call in live to the show at 714-364-4757. I'm going to go ahead and introduce our our second guest. Uh, Shirley Kukowski has been with us uh, before, and she is a career dental hygienist, and she is just an absolute champion of um, trying to minimize invasive um, 
I, I guess, of invasive disease through, uh, through our oral hygiene. Her outlook is years ahead of, and is very leading age, and it's, it's proven her staying power in her industry. After a decade of bringing dentistry to, um, up to speed by lecturing and writing and authoring books, uh, she is ready now to share her secrets with the public. She's an award-winning author, a very popular speaker. She also hosts a radio show called Crosslink on Blog Talk Radio and the Career Infusion Technology Coach. Uh, she has developed a really unique perspective from the shores um, of Lake Testosterone where she and her husband have raised um, five kids. So welcome, Shirley, to the show. Hey there, how's it going? Good, 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 good. I'm I'm so glad that you're with us here today. I just I love your passion. Um, you know, so many times people just don't get how you can be so passionate about something so specific like oral hygiene and brushing your teeth. It's like, what is up with this woman? And it's like you have to listen to her because you will get the same passion. Um because she's going to explain why it's so dang important. And it's something as subtle as um, saying hi or giving somebody eye contact. Uh, same thing with brushing our teeth. It's something we do all the time, and we just kind of take it for granted, and we don't think much further than that. It's just something we do um, or choose not to do. And so can you tell us, you know, how did you get this passion um, for oral care and and how does it how can it really make a difference with people who are dependent upon our care for them well i think the thing that got me so passionate about it is because i did have five children and they're they're pretty um they're pretty dependent they really can't do anything themselves and then if you take a look at the level of dependence of children and then look turn your head to the other side of the spectrum there and you will see that because of aging or illness or accident there is an entire group of adults who are living with the same exact level of dependence that a child is at and with pretty many the same pretty many of them have the same kind of reaction to oral care um they have very little um they have very little, uh, what do I want to say, ability to take care of themselves. And a lot of things are done to them or for them without them having any say. And this gives them some way to say no, to have some kind of um, some independence, some way of communicating their wants and their needs. And if they do not want to have their teeth brushed today, they may not get their teeth brushed today. It's not very obvious. The difference, it's not very obvious whether or not the teeth are brushed. The difference between a child not having their teeth brushed and an adult not having their teeth brushed though, is a world of difference. For a child, the likelihood of them getting a cavity is pretty great and things will happen and, and it's all it can be repaired. When an adult has a lack of oral hygiene, then they have a chance of getting pneumonia. 
They have increased costs with diabetes. They have a high incidence of having oral thrush. Um, Oral thrush is a killer in these long-term care facilities. And it's not just about decay. Decay obviously is still there. And the decay is huge by the time the dentist sees it. And so it's really important to get that biofilm off of the teeth regularly so that you can avoid all of these problems. Well, Shirley, can you can you explain what oral thrush is? Because I mean, I I, I heard about it when you know kids were little and stuff, but I don't, mm-hmm. you know, I really don't know. So explain it to to me in the audience here. I would here. love to, because this wasn't really necessarily on my radar up until maybe a year or so ago, maybe two years. It is a yeast infection of the mouth. It used to be pretty prevalent when people had dentures. And then you could take the dentures out and you could affect a cure for this. Um, what's happened in the meantime is that uh, dentistry has gotten to be such an amazing art that caregivers often don't know that a person has dentures. And so these infections are just continuous. They're almost impossible to treat. Um, they treat them with antifungal agents. But if it gets to be too far along or if the the person is not taking the medication, then the the disease becomes extremely painful and they can't eat. And then they starve to death. It is not a pleasant way to go. Okay. Well, and that's good for all of us to know. I mean, it's not something that we necessarily like to think about. And, you know, most of us are worried, you know, we always hear about don't let them get pneumonia, don't let, you know, some of the Mm -hmm. the big major things. And this is just one of those subtle things that isn't talked about, um, but really needs to be out of the closet and and discussed. why doesn't every you know care facility or person who's caring for somebody understand the importance of of how to take care of let's say even someone's dentures or bridges and things like that is that are they not trained well there's there's a couple of answers here for home health care people who are the caregivers brush their own teeth it takes a minute and a half or less they get yelled at at the dental office for not flossing and it's all good and so if they don't get someone's teeth brushed, it's not like a crisis. They don't, they don't think about this is the fifth day, this is the 17th day, this is the 28th day. They don't necessarily think about how, what that consequence is going to be like. Trained certified nursing assistants, are you sitting down? Mm-hmm. They are trained for 30 minutes on oral care. And it's in the same category as fingernail clipping and hair washing. In the care facilities, dental hygienists and dentists have to fight for time in the beauty parlor in order to provide services for people in these care facilities. There are no dental chairs in most of them. There's no decent lighting. There's really no way for us to do what we normally do in a dental, in a dental setting. So with this 30 minutes of of education, the CNAs don't know how important and what they are putting these patients and these residents at risk for by not providing oral care. You don't see Mm -hmm. it. The next 
staff will take care of it. The next shift will take care of it. And they don't they don't follow through. They can't. They're busy with other critical obvious things. Okay. Well, that that makes a lot of sense in terms of how uh you know, how and why this is going on and you know, I've always wondered um, you know, why there isn't, you know, they do have the beauty chairs, but why there isn't a dental chair because it's just so difficult to get people, you know, transported and uh, it's, it's it's impossible. It's, yeah, it's just such an upheaval um, in their life, and it gets scary for them as well as difficult and expensive. Expensive, and, yeah. You know, to be able to to share that, I would think, uh, could help significantly. Now, are there other situations um, that can crop up from poor dental hygiene that can uh, hurt someone's health? Well, we've listed quite a number of them. I'm going to take one step backwards, though, to talk about this transportation problem. Even if you could transport them to a dental office, here's the big secret. We are not prepared for them. We have no way of moving them from the wheelchair to the dental chair. We don't know how life is in a care facility We just get really upset because when we see what's going on in their mouth, that this simple process isn't taken care of, and then that's, you know, we build an attitude about it. So there's a lot of reasons why you should have somebody in the facility itself that knows the people, that knows what's going on. So we have um, the question at hand is what else? So we have dental decay which, because these people are very often on some level of pain medication, is enormous by the time the dentist sees it or before somebody even notices that there's a problem. Then you have periodontal disease. Uh, Periodontal disease may seem like no big deal to most people and the Flossmoor disease, but really periodontal disease contributes to an enormous load on the body's attempts at fighting infection. So when you hear about this inflammatory situation and inflammatory components to Alzheimer's and dementia, that all comes from um, disease processes. And one of the biggest disease processes we have that is unchecked is periodontal disease. So let's just talk about that for just another couple of seconds here. If you have 20 teeth, and many, many people are going into care facilities with at least that many teeth, and you have a periodontal infection that we consider to be moderate, you have Shirley, an infection. Yeah. Shirley, can I ask you a question, which is going to Am sound really dumb. Am I getting really too dumb, technical but, for you? No, no. Am I getting too but, geeky? Uh, <laughs> well, how, many, how many teeth do most people have in their mouth? You said that just if they had 20, is, is 20 a full set or, or not? I don't have a clue. Yeah, 28 is a full set without wisdom okay. teeth. Okay. So you so you could already lose a couple of teeth and still have a pretty pretty big number of teeth in in there. So 20 teeth. So um, periodontal disease is an infection of the soft tissue, the gums around the tooth, and you really can't see it because it goes down along the tooth. So when you add up the surface area, you have a wound, an open bleeding wound the size of the palm of your hand that you can't see. 
So that's another big problem here. Nobody knows it's there. Nobody knows how to look for it. No nurse does. No CNA certainly doesn't. So you have this real cooking infection there around every single tooth. And that translates into blood glucose management issues that are unbelievable. If you have a if you have an infection in your mouth like that, you're going to see the notes for the blood glucose tests for people with diabetes particularly that are all over the place. They are very unmanageable. Um, there was an insurance company that did a study on their subscribers who had diabetes and had periodontal treatment and had diabetes and didn't. The people who had diabetes, periodontal disease, and treatment for that disease saved $2,000 a year in downline medical costs. That's wow. a lot of money. That is a lot, a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Well. That is, you know, it's so interesting because um, do you know what some of the signs are for if glucose levels are off in terms of an infection? Because I've never heard that, but that would be really, uh, it's an interesting fact um, to know because, boy, I mean, you could really look at things differently um, knowing that. that. That just is kind of amazing. Do you know what some of the side effects are? Uh, of improper glucose management, uh, yeah. everything everything that you see for diabetes, you have uh, increased level of blindness, you have increase, increased kidney problems, you have gangrene of the extremities, you have um, other extremity kind of problems where the because the blood is not circulating well. When you have too much um, blood glucose, you have um, you have often called, uh, what do you call it, uh, sugar spilling into the urine. You have mm-hmm. uh, incontinence, a higher level of incontinence because you're constantly having to go to the bathroom because you're constantly trying to flush this out. Um, you have dry mouth, which contributes to dental decay and periodontal disease and this increased mass of biofilm on the teeth, which translates then to a higher incidence of pneumonia. So if your body's constantly cranking out these um, these chemicals that your body needs to fight an infection, and part of that is the insulin part and the sugar because a lot of this this uh, chemistry comes from the sugars that you eat and and insulin and that whole system there, it just gets overtaxed. Wow! Now I got everybody scared. <laughs> well, no, but it's it's very it's very interesting. I mean, I I had no uh, no idea with that. I wonder if that would also like I I just think of diabetes where people get their sugar highs and lows, so they get they mm-hmm. get really tired and kind of crash. If if that would be a side effect too, um, with that, interesting. Uh, just very very interesting. I always learn something new with you. So I, <laughs> well, I try to keep it keep it interesting. There was a paper, uh, uh, an article in this Sunday's New York Times on oral care and long term care. Um, I don't. You probably didn't see it um, because you're focused on some other topics. Let me see where did it go. I just had a link to it here. The New York Times blogs it is, and the article is called. In Nursing Homes, an Epidemic of Poor Dental Hygiene. Mm-hmm. And it goes into a lot of this kind of discussion about um, what happens 
to these people when they don't have any oral care? And then most answers look at dentists. Well, dentists aren't going to brush people's teeth. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that's where the big problem is. You need a dental hygienist in there at least once a week to brush somebody's teeth, at the very least. And it needs to be a professional brushing. Specifically with people with dementia, they have... They have little uh, autonomy. They have little to say about what happens to them, and they often will say no, or they will often think that they just brushed their teeth. And then if you're a busy CNA, are you going to argue with that resident, or are you going to say, okay, <laughs> next? Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's why you need somebody there specifically for oral care. The cost savings are enormous when you have somebody there taking care of somebody's teeth. The laws, some of the laws need to change depending on what state you're at. Um, You're in Minnesota. You have a very progressive state um, with respect to dental hygienists and long-term care. So, you know, if there's nobody in your care facility that's called a dental hygienist and she's not there every day, then you should start asking some questions at your facility. Yeah, and I don't I don't think there is one. I mean, my mom's been in the nursing home for 12 years and I don't ever remember um and I could be mistaken, but I don't ever mm-hmm. remember hearing anyone making reference to that at all. Um, you know, one of the things I know that is I mean, it's difficult sometimes for people to floss their own teeth, but it's really difficult to even try to floss someone else's. Any any tricks for both brushing of the teeth and um, also um, flossing? Because I I know that, or I've heard rumor that the way to brush um, has has changed in terms of what they suggest and how we do it. Um, So maybe if you can give our audience some ideas on that, that would be great. Well, uh, probably the, the easiest thing to do, the fastest thing to do, is to increase your confidence level. Just act more confident. That will help move things along very, very much. Uh, Another thing with dementia in particular is to do it away from a mirror. Um, Apparently people with dementia, depending on which kind of dementia, have an issue with seeing themselves or or seeing a crowd or or something like that. So staying away from a mirror is a good idea. Um, Switching up some dietary things. Stop using regular sugar. Switch everything over to something called xylitol. Um, That's spelled X-Y-L-I-T-O-L. And xylitol is um, really important in helping reduce that biofilm without putting so much pressure on the tooth brusher. Um, If you can brush the person's tongue, that would be good too. They make little tiny brushes that you can use between the teeth, and that will be really helpful. Um, things along those lines will be really the answers that you're looking for. Okay. Yeah, the mirror thing, um, just to let you know, it's more that a lot of times they don't recognize that it's them in the mirror. And Mm. then, you know, you're seeing things in reverse, you know, so that can complicate it too. And, um, and, And so just from a hint, a uh, hint there, and then you can get glare, uh, which can add to it even more and complicate uh, complicate situations. So the mirrors have all kinds of issues <laughs> with them. 
Well, there you go. And it's not something a dental hygienist would necessarily know without some further training, but that's that's what I hear. There are a lot of videos on YouTube, too, to show um, how to brush somebody's teeth with dementia. And they make it look <laughs> super easy. Believe me, I know it's not super easy. <laughs> yep. Yeah, well, it's it's just never, uh, nothing's ever as easy as it's made to look, and and you know there's different types of um, you know types of toothbrushes from the hard to the soft to the motorized, and um, I you know I think part of you know when you're working with somebody with dementia is you need to use what they were familiar with, so if they're used to a mechanical um, brush, that's probably going to be easier for them to take and understand than someone, you know, pu- pushing this this foreign object in their mouth. I know my mom, um, she was one who manually brushed her teeth, but she also had an extremely difficult time um, when she got in end stages understanding what this thing was and why we were, you know, jamming mm-hmm. it down her her throat. She just, um, right. it was it was very, very difficult to to deal with. And so, you know, we were really bad as a family. We got to the point where it was so disruptive to my mom um, that we, we stopped doing that. I mean, they went from the toothbrush to the swabs to the wash and, and I mean, they try, but it's, it's still difficult um, to deal with her. So, you know, mom's teeth are, are totally chipped and decayed and you would have thought an infection would have taken her years ago. Um, because if if either of us had a mouth that looked like that, we'd probably be dead. I, I don't. I really, literally, <laughs> I don't. I don't understand why she's still alive with the amount of infection that's got to be in there. Yeah. But she she's still doing she's okay. So, off, huh? <laughs> yeah. So I think you know, with the rinses, um, that's helping, and um, you know, and maybe there's more going on there than than I realize. Um, but they're mm-hmm. they're definitely working it. But um, it, it is difficult. It's very difficult when someone gets so upset. And I would think at this point, it's it's gotta hurt, you know, to boot. But right. To to put her under and get all the teeth pulled um, isn't going to really help a lot either. It would probably get the disease gone, but my mom's never done well with um, going under, and they would mm-hmm. definitely have to take her under. And she can still, even though people don't realize it, she can still tell textures, and she would know all of her teeth were gone, and she would be just devastated. freaked out. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, there's other things. There's dietary changes that you can make that are super simple. You know, when you talk to most dentists and most dental hygienists, they're all, oh, yeah, just avoid sugar, just avoid sugar. But we know that tea is extremely helpful at reducing oral biofilm. So switching her drinks up to tea, especially green tea, would be really, really good. Tea also is very high in fluoride. Just generically speaking, tea is high in fluoride. Switching her morning juice to cranberry will help to reduce that oral biofilm. Also, um, blueberry juice, just those super juices, those super fluorides, um, super, what am I trying to say? The super berries. Pardon mm-hmm. me? Yes, the antioxidants. Black coffee has been shown also to be very helpful. And xylitol, xylitol, if they like candies, and almost everybody does, having the candy right there in their um right there and using it every day would be really, really helpful. 
Okay. Well, and I know, you know, with mom, she does get uh, she does get the cranberry juice pretty frequently, and so maybe maybe that is, you know, really helping uh, calm so. the situation. Yeah, interesting. Things you don't even know, you know. that. Uh, <laughs> That's why I'm here. I'm here to educate you. I've spent so many years trying to get these dentists and these dental hygienists to have an open brain cell. This is all mm-hmm. different, you know. Yeah. So. Now, is there any research or data on, is there a link between having, you know, dirty, gross teeth and, and Alzheimer's disease or dementia? Yeah, there's there's a few things that are coming up looking at inflammation especially. So, um the inflammatory component as we talked about periodontal disease um and uh that kind of thing. They're also finding oral bacteria in the plaques in the brain. So, there's just really good reason to just keep that off. If you can notice that your parent or your sibling or whoever is starting to decline, very early, when you just start noticing, start getting them on a power brush right then. Um, start talking. Maybe it would be good to use a power brush, you know, just a light conversation kind of a thing. And um, that'll that's going to help, too. Oh, my gosh. Now, power brush, are you talking about an electronic, um, yes, electronic power toothbrush? Brush. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know all the terms, you know. <laughs> Sorry, an electric toothbrush, yeah. An ele- okay, an electric toothbrush. And with an electric toothbrush, um, are people supposed to go up and down or round or angled or what's the preferred mode these days with the electronic toothbrush for brushing? Is just to put the brush against the teeth and move mm-hmm. it against the teeth. That's okay. That's really the most important thing right there. Is it good to massage the gums as well? Yes. Okay. Because that's what I that's what I always thought. But you got me questioning what I know, so I, <laughs> I, so I need to I need to ask on that. Um, is there uh, is there any hope in sight? Do you think of long term care facilities just um having a dentist on staff like they do um you know a lot of the doctors now are coming in versus having to send people out to clinics are you seeing if and maybe they already exist and I don't know it but have you seen of any long term care facilities that actually have a dentist come in well here we go again um everybody's worried about the dentist the dentist won't do anything they will fix the teeth that are broken but we okay. want to get it before they're fixed. So okay. there are hygienists that will come to your to a nursing home or to any kind of a care facility, and um, and help. Okay. And that's one thing you can do. There are states that have specially um, designated dental hygienists who have a special license to go into care facilities. So there's there's that also. So start looking around for that kind of thing. There are outfits. Um, PrivMed on the East Coast, P-R-E-V-M-E-D, um, will have a dentist come to the facility every quarter, do an examination, and every month a dental hygienist will come in, do the in-staff training, look around, make recommendations, and provide each of those residents who are signed up under the system with a supply of xylitol products. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um 
Yeah, and you did mention that earlier that the dentist will just do the repairs. And um, I, I always think in my mind, you know, when I go to the dentist, I get both. And um, but again, once a year or twice a year isn't isn't enough either. No. Um, in, in terms of of maintaining health, so that would be that would be really interesting to see um, actually a study done on that um, to see if well there because, was one Prismed did one on their their facilities where they are in they're in seven states and in the in the facilities that they had people in they had a fifty percent reduction in pneumonia as compared to the national average. Mhm. Wow. So that that's right there. And if you go to if you go to PubMed and you search for studies that look at professional oral care, you will see reduction in respiratory infections, you'll see uh reduction in hospital days, you'll see reduction in ventilator associated pneumonia, you'll see uh numbers in um diabetes management. Uh, you'll see you'll see over and over again more and more research about clean teeth contributing to overall health. Huh. Yeah, it's amazing that the insurance companies don't back some of these uh and they do. There are some that will that will take care of you that way. People with diabetes that have a certain insurance plan will be able to see a dentist four times a year. Or go to a dental office four times a year. Um, People with um, kidney transplants, people with uh, who are pregnant. So okay, it's wonderful. Okay, well, good. Well, that's 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 a plus, and I think that we should all, um, you know, go in and ask our long-term care facilities, you know, about a dental hygienist because it's probably something that they haven't even thought of. Um, but it does does make a lot a lot of sense, and I would love if anyone here is a a researcher who is um, or a grant writer uh, who is interested in putting together a study. You know, give Shirley a holler, and I'm sure she can help you um, pull something like that together. Because uh, I I can't imagine that the numbers uh, wouldn't be fabulous. Uh, and make for some big changes in terms of of cost savings in the long run. So fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Um, Now, you had talked about some of the foods that um, we should avoid are, you know, sugar-based and things. And and I think one of the things that people forget, too, is a lot of those fruits have a lot of sugar in them as well, even though we're so used to fruits. A fruit is safe. Fruit's good Um, for you. Yep. And um, and so, you know, we have to look a little bit deeper in terms of what's what. I've also heard that, like, citric acid can be really bad on the enamel. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, out of all of the sodas, um, for instance, the worst ones are the ones that have citric acid as their, their acidifier. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, avoiding those uh, Mountain Dew and Sprite. So if you're going to have soda, then... Um, you should stick with um, root beer. Uh huh. So really, yeah, uh, that would be a good one to have. Yeah, not the Barks uh, though. The A and W Barks has caffeine. We don't want these people to have to have caffeine. <laughs> oh, I like Barks. So <laughs> yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, too funny, too funny. So again, some of the things are the zitra, zitra. What is it? Zitral. 
Xylitol, X-Y. Xylitol, Xylitol. X-Y-L-I-T-O-L. Okay. And can that be bought without a prescription? That's just oh, yeah. uh, something they you can, can get, get it at a health food store. At a health food oh, store. Oh, okay. The biggest, okay. The, the biggest company right now is called um, Clear, X-L-E-A-R, the X for Xylitol and the Clear. And then they also have a line of products called um, Spry, S-P-R-Y. They have gum and mint and mouthwash and toothpaste. They have a load of different products. Okay. Now, does chewing gum, is that does that help um, remove some of the disease and stuff in our mouths just because of, I, I've heard, just because of the saliva with uh, chewing? Does that... Is that a myth or is that true? Or, Well, it is true, but if you put um, xylitol in there, mm-hmm. you're going to get added benefits to that. Any sugar-free chewing gum will stimulate saliva, and people in long-term care all have a super dry mouth. So you're going to benefit from that. But if you add xylitol in there, you are increasing the benefit because you're okay. applying that specific sugar, and that specific sugar is going to affect the the early colonizers that make that biofilm, that plaque on the teeth. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, good. Well, um, I'm just going to do a shout-out to our listeners and see if anybody out there has any questions. Now would be the time to definitely get a hold of us and, um, and let us know. Uh, you can utilize your chat box or you can call in to 714 714- Three six four four seven five seven. That's seven one four three six four four seven five seven. And uh, let us know if you've got any questions for Shirley. In the meantime, um, Shirley, is there is there anything else that you definitely want our listeners to know? Uh, well, I think is to just really focus on getting dental hygienists into these care facilities. The dentists are going to tell you that it's not safe to have dental hygienists doing anything, and they're going to raise all kinds of really crazy kind of questions. Um, I'm not sure what their motivation is for that, but after 3,000 hours of sitting down in the school learning how to clean people's teeth compared to somebody with 30 minutes of education, I think it's a no-brainer. Um, dental mm-hmm. hygienists are extremely underutilized, um, that we are, as a group, underemployed. Um, there are 300-some dental hygiene schools and only 50-some dental schools. And um, it's there's there's just way too many dental hygienists right now. And if they could work in a nursing home, everyone would be so much healthier. I've done the I've done the math. If you have a full-time dental hygienist in a care facility, that hygienist will save enough money to pay for her entire salary and benefit package and save money left over. Mhm. That's how expensive it is to not get clean teeth in these facilities. Wow. Just wow. by Saving money in in health, in pneumonia and diabetes alone, let alone all this other stuff. Wow, unbelievable. 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 Well, well, again, as usual, I love having you on the show, Shirley. Um, What's the best 
places for people to hook up with you. I know you've got a Facebook page called America's Dental Hygienist. And that's, again, America's, so it's plural, Dental Hygienist. Mm-hmm. Um, and then your Crosslink uh, radio show on Blog Talk um, is also a great, great way to um, go ahead and get a hold of you. Is there any other contacts that you'd like people to reach you at? Um, Twitter is okay. good. <laughs> Twitter what's is your good, on, What's your handle on Twitter? SureDent, S-H-I-R-D-E-N-T. Okay. Okay, wonderful. Well, again, I thank you so much for for being with us today. And um, once again, you've enlightened me, and I will. <laughs> I, I've learned some new things that I have to have to start talking about here. So, yeah, thank you so much. And I'm willing to come back on any of these kind of topics that that you are um, looking for because it's it's really really important in life savings and in cost savings. Okay. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for your time, and I'm sure we'll be in touch soon. Okay? Thank you. Bye, Lori. I know. In wrapping up the show today, I just want to again remind you of our next uh, Dementia Chats. Um, It's going to be August 13th. And our next radio show is coming up, and that is going to be... Now, of course, I don't have it right in front of me. I thought I did. It's going to be August 14th. It's going to be on a Wednesday instead of a Tuesday, so that's a little bit of a change-up. And we're going to have uh, Max Wallach with us on his new book, which will be absolutely exciting. He's got the new kids book out that's getting just rave reviews out there. On the 20th, we'll have uh, Ramsey... uh, Bearwick with us, Bearway with us, uh, who is an elder law attorney, and we're also going to have somebody from the adult day world. So we've got lots of fun, uh, lots of fun activities uh, lined up for you. And if you have not already liked this episode and shared it with your friends, again, I would appreciate you doing that. We'd love for you to come and visit alzheimerspeaks.com. That's our main website. From there, you can get to the blog, our YouTube channel, the radio show, and all of our different platforms. Um, If you're looking for a speaker or trainer, or if you're interested in shifting your dementia care culture, I would love to talk with you. I've got all kinds of um, programs and training to assist in that. Also, if you're looking at becoming involved in the Purple Angel Project, um, please uh, please connect with me, and we will uh, we will help you with that. Last again, if you are out there and really in need of hooking up with an Alzheimer's Association, please go to Alzheimer's Disease International. That's www.alz.co.uk. And if you are looking for a clinical trial, the Alzheimer's Studies um, group is open for some uh, trials on tau. And you can just go to alzheimersstudies.com, and both words are plural. If you're dealing with Lewy body dementia, uh, please visit their association, and that is lbda.org. LBDA.org for Louis Body Dementia Association. 
Um, and the Purple Angel Project, you can find more information uh, by going to alzheimerspeaks.com or you can go directly to the purpleangel.org.uk. And um, again, I want to thank you all for listening and uh, for helping us be the number one influencer online for Alzheimer's. If you um, haven't gotten your free tool, your memory chip or your memory journal, again, you can go to our site and just uh, click on the top where it says uh, free tools in our newsletter and become a member and you'll have access to those tools. In the meantime, um, breathe deep and remember, it's not about control. It really is about letting go and um, knowing that it's about progress, not perfection. Enjoy your week, and I look forward to talking with you soon. Bye now. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebastian, host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.